You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at PolinaMarket.com. This week, we feature Major League umpire Dan Bellino. I can tell you the the best aspects of instant replay include no longer having those career-defining plays that you miss. And th that really is the, the shadow that follows you because if you have a, a big play in a big situation and your career is defined by one play, you can, you can go 30 years at the big leagues and one play define you, and that's not fair. Imagine having what some think is a thankless job, but you can bet the native of suburban Chicago is more than thankful. He gets to call balls and strikes and plays around the bases. Bellino is in his third season and is far more than just a big league umpire. How about this? He's an active real estate lawyer 12 months out of the year, studied at Oxford, and a father of four. Never, ever say the word sit still to this guy because he can't. So, Dan Bellino, tell me a story I don't know. I'm a local guy. I went to Loyola Academy. I still am very close with my high school coaches. I, I speak with several of them uh, throughout the year. I get text messages uh, from uh, one of them who was basically my mentor. He is now he's the head baseball coach at Lake Forest. His name's Ray Delfava. And something interesting, I'll I learned this early on. I would get text messages from Ray when he uh, he's followed my career and he would text me rule questions and I didn't pick up on it at first, but eventually I realized he was in the middle of a game 
asking me a rule question. And I said, are you, are you in a game that you're actually taking this to a, an umpire? And he's like, well, yeah, well, I'm texting you from the dugout. And I'm like, don't, don't do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was, uh, it was a, an unintended consequence um, without answering these questions. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're yelling at a high school umpire. He's like, no, I never yell at them, but I tell them that, you know, they're wrong. And, and, you know, you know, the rules better than, than anybody. <laughs> so I just said, I'm like, okay, call me after the games from now on. Don't call me during the game. In other words, he's trying to channel not only your, your, your expertise, but basically saying, Hey, help me out here, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. We've got, Hey, we, we got this interesting play. Well, what do you, what would you call here? And I would give the, the ruling and, uh, Ray's such a good man. He's a, he's a great guy. He was the first coach in high school that took an interest in me. Uh, my, I came from a really small grammar school, St. Catherine Labore in, in Glenview. So my graduating class in, uh, in Glenview at St. Catherine Labore was, was 14 students. Wow. So they were yeah, really small, uh, great little school. Uh, some of my closest friends to this day uh, are, were in my class. So when I went from St. Catherine Labore to Loyola Academy, it was like being pulled out of the fishbowl and thrown into the ocean. Uh, it was it was really difficult um, to make the transition from an athletic standpoint, not from a academic standpoint, the athletic standpoint, because as you can imagine, out of 14 kids, I was if I wanted to play basketball, I was in the starting five. There was, I think, seven boys and and seven girls. I think it was an equal mix. Yeah. Loyola Academy was the ocean. That was like walking into a hallway and seeing it had to have been 500 or so. Uh, students. But keep in mind also, if, if you recall, I was there uh, when it was all boys. So it was an all boy uh, school, Loyal Academy. And so my freshman and sophomore year, we didn't have girls uh, in, in the class. Then we merged my junior year with the sister school, Marillac. So I kind of had a, 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 it both ways in high school where the first two was uh, boys only and then the next two was the, the first two years of the integration. Now Loyola's thriving. I mean, they're, they're, they have to be top three high schools in the entire Chicagoland area. They're just an excellent school. And merging with Marillac was probably one of the best decisions they ever made. But when I was there, the first two years of being all boys, it was a totally different experience. You know, umpiring, Dan, is no easy job. It takes great patience, great set of eyes, the right demeanor. So tell me a story I don't know. What is the biggest challenge of being an umpire in the major leagues? Oh, it's, that, that's, that, that may be the easiest question you ever asked me, George. It's not umpiring the game. Being on the field is actually therapeutic. It's, is it challenging? Absolutely, it's challenging. But the toughest part of this job is having to leave the people you love and miss the holidays and miss the, uh, the birthdays uh, you're, you just, there's so many sacrifices that not only I make, but my family makes for me to do this job. And it's a, it's a saying I heard years ago. Uh, I, I stole it from Brett Favre. So I don't want to, I don't want to try to take credit for it, but he said, they, they don't play me or pay me to play football. They, they pay me to leave my family to play football and taking that and channeling it to baseball. I really don't believe that I get paid to umpire. I get paid to leave my home and travel the country to umpire because I just love doing it. I love being on the field. I love the challenge. I get to see some amazing, amazing athletes doing some amazing things. And it's a lot of fun, but there are ups and downs. There's any young 
prospective umpire that asked me about getting into the profession. I, I'm very honest about it, that I have three boys and I'm not sure that I would want any of my boys to umpire just because it's, it, it, just, it takes a huge toll on them. So leaving, you know, in a few weeks or months or days or hours, it, it always is a steady, uh, a steady buildup to, you know, disappointment where you're, you're sad. But once you're out and you're doing your job and you're back in the, the flow of things, everything kind of balances out. And then as my kids get older, they become more and more intrigued by my job and more proud of me, um, you know, with their friends and at school. And, and you know, so there's, there's, there's benefits, but that is by far and away the hardest part of being a major league umpire. So I would imagine anytime you see your schedule and you get to come home to either the south side or the north side, that's a great benefit. Oh, without question. Every year we have crew chiefs that uh, will select individuals for their crews. And then we do the schedules by rankings. So the, the oldest crew chief or the most, I shouldn't say oldest because that's incorrect. The most uh, senior, as far as years of service as a crew chief gets the first pick. So right now that individual is Jerry Davis. So if you're on Jerry Davis's crew, you get the first pick of the 19 schedules that are put out there. And the crews will have conversations about uh, which schedules are better than others because some have better travel, some have uh, more difficult travel, but Major League Baseball does a really good job in balancing the schedule. So every schedule has a long stretch. Uh, every schedule has uh, you know, some regionalization built into it where you'll be in the Northeast for three, four, maybe five weeks. Uh, vacations are spread out. But then, as you can imagine, some schedules are not as heavy in Chicago. So it's just the nature of the beast. So if you happen to be lucky and you get with a senior crew chief, they can pick a schedule that does get you home. So I've been very lucky because Chicago is such a great city. And basically everybody wants to be in Chicago in the summer. I, I truly believe there is no better city in the country than Chicago in the summer. So, you know, I think I think I once read, and I'm not sure if this was correct, that uh, they polled the major league umpires and they said this was their favorite city. There's there's no question. Uh, th there's a couple reasons why that's the case. One, um, from just the ease of getting in and out, uh, we have two airports, so you have a lot of flight options. They're all direct. So when you have a day game to get away, you can get out every time. There, there's really no. Um, no situation where you wind up having to stay over if you want to get out. But the other side that people really enjoy as umpires is Wrigley Field does so many day games. So it gives you an opportunity to really enjoy the, the nice restaurants. So it's th th there's very few teams that have as many day games as the Cubs. And then when you combine it with the, the ambiance of the city and just the being downtown, I mean, you know, as a Chicago guy, it's just a, it's a great place to be in the middle of the summer. Just everything included, the restaurants are top notch. And so everyone enjoys it. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you early on this being part of your job made easier or not easier by technology, instant replay. Tell me a story. I don't know about the technology, whether it's helped in some ways or hindered what you do for a living. You know, that's, that's a great question. It's, there's two sides to every coin. And I could tell you the, the backstory. I was, I was involved in the discussions when we were uh, talking about expanding instant replay. I can tell you the, the best aspects of instant replay include 
no longer having those career defining plays that you miss. And th that really is the, the shadow that follows you because if you have a, a big play in a big situation and your career is defined by one play, you can, you can go 30 years at the big leagues and one play define you. And that's not fair. That's not fair to the game. It's not fair to the individual, to their family. And it's not fair to the players because our job is to get everything right. So in that respect, I absolutely love instant replay. Bolina, he's, he's saying that Reynolds is in the way and he couldn't make a play. He's calling it on Reynolds. See the person right. pointing at Reynolds? I, I love that a big miss can be overturned. Now, it hurts because you don't ever want to be overturned. But uh, I'll tell you this about me that, that you don't know, and most people wouldn't know this because it would take a, a, a true numbers geek to figure it out. But I have the majority of my misses over the years since Instant Replay has been expanded in 2014. It's, it's an exorbitant number of like 65% of my misses are in Chicago. And the reason I attribute that is because I'm out of my normal routine. So when I commute from home, which is wonderful, don't, don't misunderstand, I would never not commute from home. Uh, it's, it's a matter of not doing the things I normally do when I'm traveling on the road. So I have a routine on the road. So when I come home, I, I have to deal with traffic. I have to deal with being on a schedule. And a lot of times uh, my kids want to come to the games and then I'm, I'm dealing with the seats and, and all of those types of things. And I'm not making an excuse by any means, but uh, it is a, a very bizarre anomaly. And when I say 65%, on average in a year, will an, a major league umpire will miss between six and 12 plays in a year. That's, that's average. So we're not talking about a large number of plays. It sounds a lot at 65%, but it's just very odd to me. And I, I talk to my wife about it a lot when I come home. I'm like, I, every time I'm in Chicago, it just seems like, like I miss a play and it's just, it, it does weigh on you as an umpire because you don't want to miss anything. It's amazing how just a very little distraction and this one is not a little distraction can alter your thought process. Right. I, you know, when we're out on the field, the it's, I mentioned earlier, it's therapeutic. So I do a lot of thinking on the field and it's not always just about baseball because Sometimes if you overthink, that's how you get yourself in trouble. So, so when I'm out there on the road and it's a normal city, just take a, if I'm in New York, for example, there aren't really a lot of thoughts going through my mind as far as what we're doing after the game or where we're going. It's just, you know, you're in New York. You just, you could do whatever you want. You can go to restaurants. If it's a day game, you can go back to the hotel uh, on night games. You do whatever you want. When I'm at home, it's more of a, you know, if, if I have um, my son's baseball game the next morning, uh, which I'm, I love to do. I love going to his baseball, to one of their baseball games on like a Saturday morning and then leave and go work a game. Uh, it, it's, it's really a cool feeling. And especially if their game ends and I take them with me, then it's just a, an added benefit. But it's, it changes everything. It's, it's no longer just being at the hotel and having a 10 minute ride to the ballpark. It's, it's an hour drive and you know, Chicago traffic. I mean, mm. geez, sometimes it could be an hour and a half. <laughs> I'm well aware of that. You, you mentioned uh, how instant replay has changed the game. 
in the fact that, um, you know, if you blew a call, uh, it could last you the whole lifetime. So have you had one of those plays you blew that you regret? No, I, I don't. I've been fortunate. I, I haven't had a career defining call. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm also on the, the younger end of the scale. So I haven't worked a world series. I haven't, I've had one league championship series. So I would say those, those big plays and those big games, you know, potentially are in my future. So I hope not to ever have a career defining play, but early on uh, there's, there's a great saying that um, an umpire said to me as I was climbing through the ranks and I first started working in the big leagues. And he said, there comes a point in your career where they stop counting your successes and they only count your failures. <laughs> and it, it really resonated with me because when I first got to the big leagues, I was, I was young and, and I was very, uh, you know, energetic as far as when I would see an abnormal situation and I would, I would come out of my shoes to try to sell it. And you know, that was, that's just how you're trained. You're trained if you see something to call it, because if you don't call it, it actually says more about your ability um, to not, you know, for lack of a better term, to not step up and, and do what needs to be done. He says, I'm asking you if it was called or if I swung or you thought I swung. He's really giving it to Dan Bellino. Yep, but Dan's giving it right back. Josh Donaldson just kicked dirt as he came across the plate and Dan Bellino ran him on the way by. He kicked dirt at Dan Bellino and he got thrown out and rightfully so. That's ridiculous. For me, the, the, the most career-defining play that I've had was actually a positive. It was a play in Washington in which it was a tricky ruling and you know a lot of individuals would say that when I made that call, it kind of it was my announcement to, to other umpires in major league level that, Hey, I can do this job. And, you know, I want to do this job because it was a tricky play and I was fortunate enough to see it and fortunate enough to call it and everything just worked out perfectly. So it, it, I've been fortunate on the other side of the coin that yes, it was career defining at the time, but obviously there's a lot more baseball to be played. You know, instant replay has its ups and its downs. And I think fans and players, Dan, hate those calls on the bases where a player was called out because his hand or foot may have been a fraction off the base. Is this something umpires would like to see eliminated? Well, I obviously can't speak for all umpires. I, I will say that getting overturned on a call like that does not sting as much as one that you miss by a foot and a half. I think Helton's off the bag at first, but he gets the benefit of the call. Wait a minute. He wasn't even close to being on the bag. Helton he can't put foot off the bag, and he still gets the out call. Don Mattingly is incensed. He came off the base because he couldn't make the play. I think it would be a really cool experiment if we were to try to do, like, a give the managers five challenges per game, but they have to challenge with what they see not go, not call somebody that's looking at it on TV. You know, it, it would be an interesting experiment. I'm not advocating that it would be better for baseball, but it would be interesting because those types of plays that you're talking about wouldn't even be challenged. Right, because they have a chance to look at it. We've always wondered why either you're going to do it or you're not. Well, it's not that, it's not that easy. They, they, they'll almost always hold you up on an important play, on a scoring play, 
they'll hold you up just to see if there is the opportunity to uh, to get an overturn. Uh, they just they're competing, and 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 I respect the fact that they're competing. We all do. This is one aspect that I think we we truly have missed out on, and I miss it personally. Is when there would be a close play at the plate as a plate umpire, there used to be just an absolute roar when you would call a guy safer out, depending on if it went for or against a home team or if it was a game ending play, for example, just a, an absolute roar. And that decibel level of that roar, you just don't really hear it anymore because what happens is you get the initial cheering, but then everybody knows, okay, they got to go to replay. And so you just don't get, fans are smart. They're, they're, they are engaged and they're smart enough to know, okay, I like the call, but it may not stand. So, you know, a lot of times managers, especially at the end of the game, when they have nothing to lose, they'll just challenge it to challenge it mm -hmm. just because they have nothing to lose. So, all right, let's go to the headset and, and confirm that the call was right, which, you know, in the, on the positive side, we don't end a game on a missed call. And, and that's from an umpire standpoint. We love that. We love that we don't end the game on a missed call. This takes me to my next question, because I've got to believe the mere mention of robots might get umpires to, how shall we best put this, argue the call. Tell me a story I don't know, whether you like the idea and whether we're going to see one behind home plate anytime in the near future. I'm obviously biased uh, in this regard. If if you can show me that the technology is better, I would entertain the, the prospect. And, and frankly, we have that. Uh, we have the, the electronic aspect and we do have that set up now where we're looking at the um, we're looking at the, the variances and the trends that umpires have. But, you know, when we're talking about robots behind the plate, I just don't I, I can't envision it. This is Rick White, the commissioner of the Eastern League. TrackMan itself uses a Doppler radar system where they have three lasers fixed on a point, in this case its own plate. As a ball crosses the plate, that communication then transmits to the umpire on the field where he hears the word strike or the word ball and then he signals that. It delivers a standardized product. I can't envision it being a positive. I can't envision it being something that we uh, that we as fans would want to see uh, in the game because the game isn't perfect, which ultimately is not something that you want to do. Um, the game isn't perfect. So you want to kind of have that imperfection out there because sometimes players, they gain advantages from being on, uh, you know, on the right side of, of, a, of a missed pitch or the wrong side of a missed pitch. It can motivate them. So I, I think that that's what makes it great. And also, George, if you just – take it down to the level of, of college and high school and little league. You want the game at the big league level to mirror those games as much as possible. And so as a father of, of three boys playing baseball, do I want to tell them that, that you're through college, you're going to be at a point where, where it's not going to be electronic and then you have to adapt. I, I think that's just a, a pretty big leap to make. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that it would be a positive, but I could be wrong. Don't misunderstand it. There, there's a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me that if they think that this is better for the game and, and they can show it, I would absolutely entertain it. 
Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by the Polina Market. And with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949. And it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouth-watering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Polina Market is now serving sandwiches. It also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online, and you can have it shipped wherever you live. I've been shopping here for 37 years, and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets, and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Dan Bellino on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I know you can't mention names, Dan, but tell me a story I don't know about a few plays or incidents that were either funny or controversial involving a call you made. It's bizarre because you don't really remember the the plays that you call well. I mean, you and my grandfather told me early on, I should start journaling this stuff because you just don't remember everything. And and I could, you know, if it's, if it's relatively recent, I can remember and say, okay, this is, this is pretty good. And, you know, something that I recently had, but right now it's, it's kind of tough for me. It's, it's tough to even isolate just one player, one situation. I'm, I'm, and I'm not trying to dodge the question. It's mm-hmm. just, it really is, you know, we're trained to have short memories. <laughs> so obviously you've got one. You want to go out there every time and, you know, if, if you want something that's funny, I could tell you this is has nothing to do with a specific team or player, but this is something that happens, not exaggerating, all the time. I will get a phone call in the morning during the middle of the summer, and somebody will ask me, hey, where are you? And I honestly have no idea. I The hotel rooms all look the same, and I'll be like, where, where am I? And sometimes I'll look at the phone in the hotel and be like, oh, I'm in Kansas City. You know, it's it just every day is the same. And then likewise, after a game to, to just illustrate how short our memory can be, we'll walk into a hotel and somebody at the front desk will say, Hey, who won tonight? And we all look at each other like who won, you know, it's <laughs> like, we, we just don't, we don't think like that. We don't think like, Oh yeah. The, the, you know, the Cubs won or the Sox won. We just think we could tell you the game time. If you were to say, Hey, how long did the game last? Uh, three hours and 20 minutes. You know, that question we know the answer to, but who won and what the score? Forget it. Like, we're looking at our phones. We forgot. Boy, it sounds like Groundhog's Day every day. It really is. It, it truly is. And then you just mix in a few travel days. You mix in a few flights here and there. And, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky that when we fly domestically, that we have the option to get on any flight that we want. So we typically will have three or four flights booked on any given uh 
travel day. So it's, you have the, if you happen to have a two hour game or two and a half hour game, you get the early flight. Then you've got the normal flight, the, you know, that would be about five hours after the game time, after the game starts. And then you've got the emergency flights that are either the red eyes or the, the next morning. Everyone has some kind of inspiration, Dan, that leads them down a certain path. And I think you probably have more than one. So let's start with umpiring first. Tell me a story I don't know. How you came about wanting to be an arbiter? It's very vivid for me. When I went to Northern Illinois, I had aspirations to be a basketball player at the Division I level. So uh, I, I was not good enough. But I went and I tried to walk on. And I remember the head coach was uh, Brian Hamill, just an, an excellent individual, incredibly hardworking. And Brian Hamill, after I tried out, he, he said to me, he said, Dan, you, you can make the open shot 50% of the time and you can make the open pass 70% of the time. And he said, but at this level, you need to make the open pass or the open shot 70% of the time and you need to make the open pass 90% of the time. And so while I was sitting there realizing that I was, I was being told that I'm not going to make the team, the next step was something I didn't foresee. He said, we have opportunities to be a manager that you can earn a full scholarship. And that got me intrigued. So I obviously took advantage of it. And I was so lucky that I was able to get the, the job and I was able to get a full scholarship from Northern Illinois. Then one of my duties was to take care of the officials. So I got to meet a lot of division one basketball officials and I realized very early on that it was a craft and that these, these individuals had other jobs and they were incredibly dedicated to doing a good job at officiating. And I just, I was really inspired by it. So I started to learn more and more about it. And I started my career officiating basketball. So I didn't umpire my first baseball game until I was 23 years old. I was refereeing basketball from 18. So climbing the ranks, doing high school basketball, and then up to the collegiate level. And my goal was to be a division one basketball official and to be an attorney. That was, that was my goal. And then I took a drastic left-hand turn in 2003 and started looking into baseball. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's Hot Dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouth-watering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill? Then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available just about everywhere from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, socks and cubs, museums, and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has Farm Acres Chili, Mini Bagel Dogs, Condiments, and Classic Deli Meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Now, the road traveled, Dan, is not an easy one. You've got to start at the bottom, work your way up. So how apropos your first big league assignment happened to be at Wrigley Field in 2008. So tell me a story I don't know about that game. 
And you're going to have to divulge this, whether you're a Cubs or a Sox fan. Oh, well, uh, I could, I could tell you I'm neither growing up. I was on the North side and I went to more cub games than I did Sox games, but it was more, uh, just where whatever games my grandparents or my parents took me to, but we did go to both. So I was on the North side and I would say that as a, as a kid, uh, we, we leaned in my house more towards cubs. Um, but I wasn't, I, you gotta remember when I was a kid, it was the nineties. I was a Bulls fan. I mean, it was hard to find anybody that wasn't a diehard Bulls fan in the Chicagoland area through the night. You're distracted by a fellow named Jordan, huh? Yes. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a certain individual who, by the way, his son went to Loyola Academy. <laughs> so uh, his son was a heck of a basketball player. And I remember when, when he was playing there, it was, you know, it was like the Rolling Stones were in town, but the, um, the first game that I had at the big league level was just pure happenstance and it was dumb luck. Um, and I was in Oklahoma city. I had an off day and traveled to Chicago and I hadn't been home in at that point. I want to say it was like six weeks. Cause you just don't get to go home a lot in the minor leagues. So I was living in crystal Lake and I went home and I received a phone call from Rich Garcia, who was the head umpire supervisor. And it was, it was 5.15 on a Tuesday night, June 25th, not that we keep track, June 25th, 2008. And he called me at 5.15 and I answered the call. I said, hello. And he said, where are you? And his tone of voice made me think I was in trouble. I'm like, I'm at home. And he said, how long would it take you to get to Wrigley Field is what he said. And I said, how long do I have? <laughs> and he said, uh, the game's at 7.05. I said, I can be there. So he said, uh, get your stuff and go. He said, just get in the car and you're driving to Wrigley and you're working third base tonight. So I turned to my wife and at the time we had uh, two kids and I turned to her and she said, um, oh, excuse me, correction. We had one and one on the way. So I look at her and she immediately starts crying. And I'm like, I realize they aren't tears of joy. They're, she's like, we haven't seen you in six weeks and you're leaving. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. We don't have time for this. I said, I got to get to Wrigley Field. I said, you can be upset later. I got to go. So I got in the car and I started driving and rush hour traffic from Crystal Lake. Mm. It, was, it was a modern miracle that I got there on time. I, I was driving on the shoulder. I got to uh, Addison. I got off at Addison. I was very lucky. I came across some uh, Chicago police officers and I said, I need your help. I need to get uh, to Wrigley Field. And they thought I was crazy. They're like, yeah, we don't do that. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. This is, this is like really important. This is my, my big league debut and I, it's an emergency call. So I wound up getting to the ballpark with 20 minutes to spare. So I still say, to get from Crystal Lake on a Tuesday night in the middle of the summer from 515 to get there at 635, that's that's a miracle. You know, it, it almost just, sounds like you didn't have time to be nervous. You're absolutely correct. I didn't have time to be nervous and I didn't have time to even think about it. By the time I got out there, I was still catching my breath. And as I'm sitting here in my home office, I have pictures of that day uh, hanging on my walls. And it's like, if I didn't go home that day, I wouldn't, that phone call would have been, where are you? I'm in Oklahoma city. Okay. Talk to you later. So it was just dumb luck that I, that I took the time and went home because I had to pay for it out of my own pocket. 
you know, which in the minor leagues, you, you don't make a lot of money. So it was a tough decision to fly home from Oklahoma city and then fly back at, you know, a few hundred dollars mattered back then. How did you do that night? Oh, I, I had a couple calls, but nothing crazy. And, um, you know, the, the cool part was that my, uh, some of my family was able to get there. They just showed up and bought tickets. And so the third inning, my mom is, is down there yelling, Oh, you know, Dan, Dan, Dan. And so it, it became, <laughs> um, you know, it was really cool. And then the teams knew it was my first game because after the game was over, they sent over uh, their lineup cards and the, the, the big lineup card that Lou Pinella had on the wall because Lou Pinella was the manager at the time. So that's laminated and I've got that in my office. And then uh, I was mentioning that the, my cell phone after the games, anytime as an umpire, you have a, a big accomplishment. It, the community is, is really, really supportive. So text messages and phone calls just for days saying congratulations just walking on a big league field is, is such a, uh, you know, it's, it's something you strive for for so many years in the minor leagues. And you just wish that everybody that puts in 10 plus years in the minor leagues gets to experience it at least once. So there was that fear that maybe I'm a one and done guy that it's possible. It has happened before, but I would, I was very fortunate. I wasn't one and done and I only worked one game in 2008 and then I worked 30 plus games in 2009. And then from 2010, I've, I've been in the big leagues. You know, here's what I loved growing up. A good old fashioned argument between an umpire and a manager or even a player. But those are fewer and far between, probably because of instant replay. But, you know, we can read lips. Tell me a story I don't know about one of them. And if you can't reveal the name, I'm sure the listeners will understand. Oh, sure. I, I could tell you that I had a, uh, uh, I could share the name, uh, Robin Ventura, who was just a, an excellent individual, just always a pleasure to work a game for. And it was a, several years ago that there was a controversial play. It was a rundown where the runner ran out of the lane. And he's safe. So we're not the only one who can screw up a pickle play. Um, and I, I said, uh, I called him out for going out of the attempted tag was being made and he kind of ran around it, which can only go three feet. So I called him out. It was the right call. It was, uh, it wasn't necessarily controversial, but it brought him out of the dugout. And when he came out, he's like, listen, you know, my guys are telling me that I, I, you know, I need to stick up for him more. And he's like, I think you got that right. He's like, but I really you know, I haven't been ejected this year. So I just need you to, to do me a favor and let me just kind of yell at you for a minute and show them that I got their back, but I'm going to need you to eject me. Now they're calling him out. Yeah. And now Robin's coming out. And now Robin's put up his argument. He might as well go ahead and get his money. He's getting it. Okay. I said, all right, Robin, you'll just tell me when. And, you know, when you watch the video of it, you think that we're arguing. And he's telling me as he's pointing to right field, he's like, I'm just going to point to right field now. And now I'm going to point to left field. And he said, now I'm going to point at you. And he's like, now you can do it. And I'm like, okay. So then I throw him out. And then after the game, uh, I walked in the locker room and we have to write a report. So after the game, I walk in the locker room and there's a handwritten note from Robin Ventura thanking me for ejecting him. <laughs> so you, you just... You never know what you're going to get. 
but uh, you know, I still have that note. It's just, it's something that I keep. It's, you know, it's not valuable to anybody but me, but it's just a good memory that I remember Robin Ventura asking me in the middle of the summer to, to eject him from a game. Why do I get the feeling this happens much more often than we think? Uh, it, you know, it does, but I would say if, if I have six ejections in a summer, it, it's one of them is, is that, but most of the time the managers are coming out there because they do need to manage their players. They knew they, they want to keep their players in the game and we want to keep them in the game because the second you remove them from a game, you've now interjected yourself into altering the potential outcome of the game. That's something that we take lightly. And it's something we try to avoid at all costs. Are we perfect at it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We, we will make mistakes and there's instances where something's taken out of context and we're human beings and we have emotions too. Uh, but what we like to, what I like to try to do is remind players that they're competing, but I'm not competing against them and they're not competing against me. So while they're competitive and that's what makes them so good at what they do, they need to understand we're not the enemy. We're not trying to rule against them. We're just trying to get it all right. So instant replay definitely is cut down on those arguments. But if a player is emotional and some are better, the more emotional they get, they perform better. The manager's job is to do everything they can if they sense that there's an opportunity to intervene and, and protect his player, that they have to do it. So you have that a lot where they come out and they say, I, I cannot afford to lose him. And we understand, I get it. You have a job to do, but I have a job to do too. And we can't, we can't stand out here and just be abused or take abuse from a player. If they make it personal, they can argue the play. They can argue the pitch. They can argue uh, the situation, but they can't make it personal. If they make it personal, that, that just crosses a line that nobody should ever have to deal with. I mentioned you have more than one inspiration because you not only got uh, a law degree, you also attended the fabled and prestigious Oxford University, which is the setting for so many of these British mysteries. This is just about what my wife and watch all the time. Uh, so tell me a story I don't know about that experience and what you've done with that law degree. Oh, uh, sure. So when I was at Northern Illinois, one of my professors, who is now one of my closest friends, his name is David Wade. He was a business professor. And I didn't, I knew I wanted to go to law school. And David told me, he said, you know, you need to really work on building your resume and making yourself unique. So he, he encouraged me to apply to the program at Oxford for the, it's not an exchange program. It's just a study abroad program. So David inspired me to do that. And, uh, you know, that combined with my managerial duties, I thought this is going to be really good for law school. So that it was such a tremendous experience going to Oxford and spending an entire semester there and traveling on the weekends. I would go to the different, uh, different countries, spend a, a weekend in Ireland, a weekend in Italy, saw the Sistine Chapel, weekend in Paris. It was just an incredible, incredible experience. I would tell anybody that's in college, that if they have an opportunity to do something like that, they should do it. So uh, David was also the individual that while I was in law school, he wrote me a recommendation to go to law school. And ironically, in his class, the class that I took with him, he only gave me a B. Uh, it, it was 
kind of, it's still a, a longstanding joke with he and I that he wrote me this sparkling recommendation, but I only got to be in his class. And my grades in, in undergrad were pretty, pretty good. I only received, I think, two C's in, in all my years at Northern Illinois, and I received five B's and the rest were A's. So he was one of the five B's. And uh, he writes me this great recommendation. I get a B and he'll tell you if he was on this call, he would tell you, you only earned a B, which is part of the reason why I respect him so much because he's always been an individual that I can go to and he shoots me straight. So when I was working for Judge Kokoris down at the federal building, the Dirksen Federal Building, I remember having a conversation with, with Dave saying that, you know, somebody mentioned to me something about umpire school and the same attitude he had about me going to Oxford. He's like, you need to do this. You need to do this. Of anybody I've ever known, you, you, your eyes light up when you talk about officiating. You need to do this. So he was somebody that throughout my minor league career, he would come and visit me uh, on the road. Uh, when I was in the Puerto Rican Winter League, he had his family out to Puerto Rico and, and he visited me there as well. He now will uh, come out for a, a series or two a year. And he's one of my closest friends. So he's definitely an individual that had a significant impact on my life. So, of course, your law school research paper concerned the Major League Umpires Union and the strike of 1999. Was that simply the natural path to take? No. Uh, it, I was that, When I wrote that paper, first of all, there were many inaccuracies in that paper that I now know to be true. <laughs> so it's interesting what what you know or what you think happened versus what actually happened. So when I wrote that paper, it was more that I had decided I was going to go to umpire school. So a lot of my thought process was just around umpiring. So obviously I was in, intrigued and I wanted to learn as much about umpiring as possible. So it was just, um, it was an added uh, benefit that I was able to write that paper on that subject. So if I, if I wanted to be an astronaut, I'm sure that paper would have been about NASA. So it's, uh, it's something that, that to this day, I remember researching it and, and being interested in it. But what took place in 1999 is in every labor book in law schools to this day, because it, it, was, a, it was very interesting, to say the least, the strategies that were employed and the way things worked out. It was definitely not the outcome that I think either side expected, but uh, it, it kind of rewrote labor law to an extent. So here you are, a major league umpire, a full-time real estate lawyer, a father, and you're only in your early 40s. Why do I get the feeling, Dan, you need a few more hours in each day or an eighth one? <laughs> well, the, the good thing is that my real estate, I have a great staff. So my real estate transactions, I have a staff of individuals that are so good at their jobs. They're so valuable to me that that kind of runs itself. The, the individual cases that I take where I do a lot of uh, business uh, succession work and corporate estate planning for individuals, high net worth individuals that uh, need you know, comprehensive estate plans. That's what I find truly rewarding. So I am more productive on the road than I am at home because when I'm at home, I've got the kids and the family. So the six and a half months that I'm on the road, I'm a really good lawyer because my days, I have a lot of free time or if I'm on an airplane, I can be reviewing documents and 
I'm just not somebody that likes to sit still. It's just, it's not in my makeup. I've always been this way where it's, I don't know if it's my Italian grandparents that just, you know, what are you doing? Go get a job, you know, do something that, that I, it was instilled in me to, to always try to do something. I'm not, I'm not a big um, uh, drinker. I, I do not enjoy being uh, in a bar late at night. I, Georgia, had, I like to say to people, and I say this to my kids all the time, that every bad story that I've heard in my life usually starts with at 2 a.m. when we were leaving the bar. Uh, you never hear a good story that that comes out of that. It's always something bad. I conclude all of these interviews, Dan, with this final question, though it's hard to imagine you haven't already answered it. What would you have been had it not been for umpiring or lawyering? Oh, that's, that's difficult. Uh, being a lawyer, there's so many different avenues to go. So I'm going to answer this in the legal field. I would have been a litigator. I would have been a trial attorney and I would have enjoyed very much the opportunity to advocate on behalf of whichever side I happen to be representing in a courtroom. I grew up watching attorneys. My mother was a court reporter and then she went into the probation department, the federal probation department. So as a kid, I would go in the summers and sit in the courtrooms and that's what made me want to be a lawyer. It was the fact that these attorneys would come in, these these uh, men and women would come in and they were dressed so well. And I remember thinking, wow, look at, look at that suit. I want to, I want to look like that. So I think I would still be in the legal field. I would just be doing it at a much different level. Thank you, Dan Bellino, for telling me a story. I don't know. My thanks to NBC Sports Chicago and Rick White, the president of the Atlantic League. Thanks, as always, to T.J. Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing, T.T. Shinkin for her artistic touch, and Ken Schreiner for always being there. And, of course, to our presenting sponsors, the Polina Market. Find them at polinamarket.com and the Vienna Beef Company in business since 1893. You can find them at viennabeef.com. Join me next time for another edition of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.